0: Now take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, his first letter to the Thessalonians. Today as we close out the first chapter of this book, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, today reading verses 1 through 10. And this is very much sort of, you know, those, um, those television shows that you watch and they always begin the episode previously on. This is very much a continuation. We stopped last week in the middle of a larger thought, but we looked last time at the work that God was doing through the church by sending the gospel into the church and the way that Paul was rejoicing in their faith and their hope and their love and all that Christ was doing. And now we're going to see that he turns and continues that thought, rejoicing in God's work and setting them apart as he calls them an example to other believers. We're going to be reading the whole passage, really focusing today mostly on verses 6 to 10 as we read today, and that's where our study uh, will focus as well. Before we read this word of God, let's seek his blessing on our study together. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that by your Holy Spirit you would grow us in fullness of conviction, that your word would come to us with the joy of the Holy Spirit, that you, by your word, would cause us to wait for your Son from heaven, whom you raise from the dead, Jesus who saves us, delivers us from the wrath to come. O Lord, give us faith in yourself as we read. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, reading verses 1 to 10. Paul In an errant word of God, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, You may have uh, seen the buzz on social media about four years ago, four summers ago. It was an Egyptian college student who visited the zoo in Cairo and then posted to his feed a picture of what he believed to be two counterfeit zebras on display. Uh, The uh, the picture he posted showed an animal that was just slightly smaller than your average zebra. Important detail, it lacked the normal black snout and instead had a lighter colored ashen gray snout. And then uh, also the telltale signs that the stripes on this animal were smudged in places Uh, Not as you might expect on a zebra. Well, the director of the zoo denied very strongly trying to pass off fake zebras for the real thing. But the evidence was there. And all of the animal experts on the internet that saw the picture all agreed uh, that the zebras in the Cairo Zoo were really just donkeys painted to look a bit more exotic. Actually, this is not the first time that a zoo has tried to get away with the same trick. Back in 2009, a zoo in Gaza did the same thing and admitted to painting two donkeys uh, using masking tape and hair dye. The owner of the Gaza Zoo said that because of an Israeli blockade, it would have been far too expensive to source real zebras. And then he added that, you know, the children don't know the difference, so they call them zebras, and they're just happy to see something new. I suppose, for some things... A counterfeit is probably close enough, right? A preschooler in a zoo might never know the difference between a real zebra and a striped donkey. And you might be perfectly happy with that handbag that you know quite well was not made by coach, or that watch that's not a genuine Rolex, and sometimes a counterfeit is close enough, but what about when it comes to matters of faith? What about when it comes to looking for a church that's meant to fit the pattern of what God says His churches ought to be and what they ought to look like? Do you think you could tell a difference between the real deal and a phony? during the time of the Protestant Reformation, theologians identified and and taught about three marks, identifying aspects of true churches. They said at the time that true churches are those where the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, where the sacraments of Jesus Christ are administered, and where the discipline of the church is maintained. Gospel, sacraments, and discipline, the three marks of a genuine church. And that's true, though you'll notice here in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, he identifies a few additional aspects that also show up in genuine churches. You notice in verse 7 that he says that the church in Thessalonica had become an example for all the other churches in the Greek peninsula. The word example could also be translated as a model. It is a pattern It's meant to be replicated. It's meant to be reproduced in the lives of other Christian communities. That's a significant statement. Paul often, in his letters, you may recall, tells believers to imitate, to emulate his way of living and ministering among among them. He sometimes calls members of a church to imitate the lives of the leaders that God has set in their community, but only here. Only of the Thessalonian church does Paul hold up an entire Christian community and say, this is what a church ought to look like. Here is an example for all other churches to emulate. Well, I'm not a reformer, but I have managed to find three marks of the church in this passage, uh, three aspects of what it means for a church to be a genuine church. The first thing we learn is that a genuine church is a joyful church. We're picking up halfway through verse 5. Paul says, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul is still giving thanks for God's work among the Thessalonians. He's still talking about some of the evidences that show that God was at work in calling this body of believers to himself. And here in verse 6, the evidence that he cites is the joy of the Holy Spirit among the people of God. Anytime we talk about joy in the church, it's probably a good idea to stop and define our terms. Sometimes it happens, and it's a tragedy when it happens when we take joy and we reduce it down to something like happiness. When we confuse real joy with a sort of situational comfort and the things that are happening around us. There's nothing wrong with with happiness. It's good to be a happy church. In fact, I think we ought to strive to be a happy church. There is probably no less attractive form of Christianity than the kind that says, well, we believe in Jesus, and we're going to go on just complaining about how miserable all the things around us are. It's not a bad thing for a church to be a happy church, but we need to know that happiness is not the same thing as real joy. Neither can we reduce real joy to something like a sunny disposition. There are some of you among this church, and I know you well enough to know, that there are some of you here that seem just naturally unflappable. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what unhappy circumstance you're facing. You always seem to assume that things are going to get better, that the future is going to be more comfortable than uh, than the past, or maybe that it is today. And that approach seems to be practically hardwired into your personality. I've got to tell you that for those of you who are like that, I don't understand you at all. (laughs) I'm thankful for you. I praise the Lord for you and for your influence in the church, but I don't get you because that's not the way that I'm made. That's why I like uh, how John Stott puts it. Commenting on the hope back in verse 3, he said, Every believer is a hoper, though not necessarily an optimist. That's because optimism is a matter of temperament. Hope is a matter of theology. The same is true when it comes to Christian joy. You don't have to be an optimist to be filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You don't have to believe that tomorrow will necessarily be more comfortable than yesterday in order to be glad and rejoice in the day that the Lord has made. That's because when Paul mentions joy here in verse 6, he's not talking about your natural proclivities or your temperament, or your, your natural bent, or the way that you're wired. In fact, he seems to be talking about joy that is explicitly supernatural. Joy that comes from somewhere other than you. He says it's joy that comes from the Holy Spirit, not our circumstances, not our temperament. Jo- this joy has roots deeper than those surface-level things. This kind of a joy that he's talking about is a, is a thankfulness and a contentment in the Lord that has, that has roots that are fed by a secret spring. You know, the psalmist says that the man who trusts in the Lord is like a tree planted by streams of water. The same thing is true for the Christian who's filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They're able to rejoice at precisely those times that the unbelieving world expects joy to be most unsustainable. Notice what he says. You receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Later in chapter 2, he's going to come back to this. He's going to elaborate on these afflictions. But for now, it's enough for us to know as he says that these were afflictions just like the apostles faced. Just like Jesus himself faced, these were the afflictions of of rejection and opposition and hatred for the cause of God in the world. And if you understand that, you also understand that in order to be joyful in circumstances like that, you either have to be a sociopath or you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, you either have to believe that suffering itself is an intrinsic good, which would point out probably a mental disorder. Or, you have to believe that the God of your affliction has good things in purpose for it. To rejoice in afflictions mean believing that God has happy outcomes in mind. Even though you're not going through very happy things right now. Rejoicing in afflictions means believing that God uses external suffering to strengthen the inward resolve of his people. Sometimes he uses that suffering to strengthen the sufferer. Sometimes he uses it to strengthen those who are watching the sufferer. That's why every week in your bulletin, there is another insert pointing out a way that we can be praying for our brothers and sisters in the persecuted church. Every week we come to the Lord in prayer and we ask him to sustain his people. We ask him to give faith and joy in the afflictions that they're suffering. And we do that week after week for a few good reasons. We do that first because the Bible tells us to do that. Hebrews tells us that that we ought to remember those who are imprisoned for their faith as though we were imprisoned with them. It's good to pray for God's persecuted people. But we also keep praying for those Christians because it's by the example of their afflictions that the Lord strengthens us for the very small sufferings that we also have to face. I met this week with another local pastor for a cup of coffee and some conversation. In the course of talking together, uh, he was telling me how some of his other ministry friends in in more culturally Christian parts of our country always talk to him and, and wonder out loud about how difficult it must be to do pastoral ministry in New England. They'll say things like, wow, it must be, must be really difficult to try and preach Christ in a place that has been so hardened against Christian teaching. And the friend that I was meeting with, who also happens to be a former Marine Corps officer who is no stranger to difficulty, says that he always replies in the same way. He says, no, 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 ministry isn't hard in New England. Ministry is hard in Pakistan. And he's right. But ministry isn't Hard here. It's not hard to be the church in New England. It might be uncomfortable sometimes. It might be inconvenient sometimes. And so we pray for our afflicted fellow believers in part because it puts our afflictions into perspective. It reminds us that if the Lord can give Holy Spirit joy to believers in places like Oman, where they're suffering the loss of their jobs and their homes and their, children's, uh, their children and their very lives, He's able to give us joy. Even if our faith only means that somebody might accuse us of being bigoted, or small-minded, or maybe anti-intellectual, if you believe those things written in that ancient book. Paul said the Thessalonian church received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It was their joyful suffering that became a model for other believers to emulate and would that the Lord would do the same thing for us. Would that he would make us a joyful church Would that he would give us the willingness and the contentment to suffer the loss of even our social capital, if that's what it means, to cling to Christ. You know, in public high school, the absolute worst thing that somebody can say about you is that you are unpopular. That you're on the outside that you're the person that nobody wants to be around, and then you graduate and you expect that you're going to grow out of that way of thinking, and then 20 and 30 years down the line, there are adult Christians still living like other people's opinions are the be-all and end-all of happiness in this life. We don't want to be unpopular because of our faith. That's really just about all it costs right now in our country. You might be unpopular Other people might think poorly of you. And we don't want to be unpopular in our workplace. We don't want to be unpopular in our extended families. We don't want to be unpopular among those people who are on the very edges of our social circles that we might only see once every three years, but we don't want to be thought ill of by them. And so what do we do? Well, we hedge and we equivocate And we stifle the incredible joy of knowing Jesus Christ and receiving salvation through grace by Him, we put those things down and we stuff them in a box because we don't want them to come out because other people might not want to be around us. And so we just go along with the rest of the world. We just go on complaining and grumbling about stock prices and gas prices and the state of the economy and everything else. We fill our conversations with uh, all these other grumblings that the world loves to grumble about, and we take the joy of Christ and we hide it away. Would that the Lord would give us a joy in Jesus that can't be silenced. Would that he would give us a joy in Jesus that spills out over our Sunday worship and into our Monday meetings and into our Thursday soccer practices and every, into every square inch of our lives as we live them and in every relationship that we have. That's what a genuine church is. A genuine church is a joyful church closely related to that, the genuine church is an evangelizing church. Take a look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Now it seems that the focus here is on the second half of that verse, on the Christian experience, that the word of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has also gone out, but it has gone out as the essential accompaniment to the word of the Lord. That's a phrase that doesn't show up in the New Testament very often, but it shows up all over the Old Testament. We spent several months reading through and studying the minor prophets. The word of the Lord came to Nahum and to Obadiah, And Paul's saying that you've become like prophets in your own communities. The word of the Lord has gone forth from you. And it causes us to remember that old tired saying that I bet you have heard before. That saying that Christians ought to preach the gospel at all times and we ought to use words when necessary. Now typically that saying is attributed to Francis of Assisi. There's no real evidence that he ever said it. It's probably just another slick counterfeit. But as as a quotable quote, it it, it reminds us of our popular imagination of the kind of person that Francis must have been. You remember that Francis was that mystic Catholic monk, uh, the one who renounced all of his worldly goods in order to serve the poor and to care for those who were downtrodden. And that phrase dropped onto his lips Makes us think that it's an encouragement just to live exemplary Christian lives, to be compassionate people, to be loving, to be kind, to, to speak words of encouragement, to be willing to lend a helping hand. And it also seems to be a subtle warning that sometimes preaching the word of the gospel might just get in the way of doing the work of the gospel. Now, I hope that it's plain and clear what is wrong with that approach. What's wrong is the fact that without the spoken message of Jesus' sacrifice for sinners, we're never actually sharing the gospel at all. We're not even sharing anything distinctly Christian. There are lots of nice people and compassionate people in the world, there are lots of people helping out and lending a hand. Without the call to repent and to believe, the word of the Lord never actually goes forward. Here's how Romans puts it. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 to 15, tells us that, yes, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That's what was happening in Thessalonica. The gospel of Jesus was being preached with words. And those gospel words were accompanied by a joyful faith that demonstrated the authenticity of God's power in the lives of his people. Notice the parallel language between the way that the gospel came to Thessalonica and the way that the gospel went out from Thessalonica. Verse 5, Paul says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit, with full conviction. Verse 8, he says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. This is what we call a multiplication ministry. The gospel is preached, and then the gospel is believed, and those who have believed it preach it again, and somebody else believes it, and they preach it to somebody else, and so on and so forth, until the gospel reaches from Thessalonica to Concord, Massachusetts 2,000 years later. This is how the word of the Lord goes forth. This is what marks out a genuine church. The genuine church is an evangelizing church. Quite frankly, the evangelizing church is a church that has more than one evangelist. Here's the error in the other direction, right? Because sometimes Christians who are faithful believers, who, who believe and, and are firmly convinced of the need of word ministry, of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, well, they cheat, treat evangelism like a game of backyard football. And of course, the pastor always gets to play all-time quarterback, right? He's the only one who can make any passes, and everybody else is just running around staying busy. It shows up in lots of different forms. This kind of thinking shows up in very, very conservative churches where the pulpit ministry is guarded and valued and protected. It also shows up in those churches that are are more progressive, the ones that we might call seeker-sensitive, if that term still applies anywhere. Whatever form it takes, it always amounts to saying something like, you know, all that a regular member of the church has to do is to get their unbelieving neighbors into church. Because once they get them through the doors, well, then the pastor will point them to Jesus. And I'll tell you that I'm glad to do that. Right? If you can get your unbelieving neighbors here, I will point anybody who's willing to listen in the direction of Jesus. But I've got news for you, and I hope that it won't come as a shock. The news is that your unbelieving neighbors don't want to come to church. Some of them might. So you should probably invite them, right? See who bites, try it out. But by and large, the people who are not currently attending a gospel-preaching church have no interest in attending a gospel-preaching church. And do you know what that means? It means that your unbelieving neighbors are far more likely to hear the gospel from you than they are from me. Out of the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, Paul says, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. We've got a lot of Southerners here. That word is y'all. It's a plural. All y'all. You're all involved in this work, Paul is saying. Then he says when it sounds forth, that means it's like a gunshot. It's like a roll of thunder. It happens in one place, and it reverberates out in all directions. He's talking about the kind of work that the whole church does, that no one single pastor could ever do, no matter how faithfully he preaches week in and week out. Folks, I'm going to ask you a question, and it's not because I'm trying to make you feel like a failure in your faith, or somehow uh, somehow inadequate in your Christian commitment. I ask it because it seems like this is where the text is pushing us. The question is, who is the last person you preached the gospel to? Who is the last person that you called to repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? When was the last time you engaged in the kind of sending forth the word of the Lord that Paul is talking about here? Or maybe if we wouldn't even agree with it, maybe have we slipped sort of unknowingly into that only-use-words-when-necessary approach. It's a challenge for all of us, actually. It's a challenge to believe the gospel and to love the gospel and to live out the implications of the gospel in our lives, but it's also a challenge for us to be speaking the word of the gospel. To be so full of the joy of Jesus Christ that we can't keep it hidden from week to week. We ought to let the word of the Lord sound forth in every direction that the Lord sends us out. And if we do that, I bet you might be surprised how many of your neighbors might want to show up and see what's going on in that little church of yours. Now the genuine church is a joyful church. The genuine church is an evangelizing church. And finally, the genuine church is a waiting church. Now the result of all the church's joyful faith and witness led to, again, what John Stott called a holy gossip. Everybody was talking about what the Lord was doing in Thessalonica, but what were they gossiping about? Verses 9 and 10. It says, they themselves report concerning us the reception we had among you. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the theological center of everything Paul has said in 1 Thessalonians up to this point. He's telling them that once these now Christians lived in the kingdom of darkness. He's telling them that at one time they worshipped and they served Idols made by human hands and by comparison to what he says about the living and true God here, he's telling them that these idols are not like the living God because they are dead. They're not like the true God because they're false. These idols are figments of human imagination, the sorts of things that the psalmist says have mouths but do not speak, and eyes but do not see, and ears but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. And then verse 8 of Psalm 135, those who make them become like them, and so do all who put their trust in them. It is the universal principle that what we worship shapes us those things that we give our greatest affections to, have the ability to recreate us in their image. Which is why we don't get to claim the moral high ground by just comparing our invisible idolatry to all the marble shrines in the old Roman cities. They might have bowed down to things you could see and feel and touch, these these idols of Ceres and Jupiter and Apollos and, and whoever else it might have been. You know, the New Testament also says that immorality and greed are forms of idolatry, too. Things that shape us after their image, and you know how it works. If you give yourself to the worship of money, you will be consumed with the thrill of having and getting and counting and keeping. If you worship earthly power, you will offer human sacrifices in the form of anybody who stands in the way of achieving your goals of actualization. If you worship sex, you become engrossed in the endless pursuit of the next debased pleasure, and it doesn't matter what long-term cost to your body or your soul or your partner. On and on it goes with all of our idols. Those who worship them become like them. But when the gospel takes hold, you'll see it in a changed life, a new orientation, a turn, Paul says, from those destructive falsehoods to the God of truth and life. You'll see it in a conversion. A turning, you'll see it in a willing service in the kingdom of Christ. When the gospel takes hold, as Paul has already explained, you will see it in faith and hope and love. You'll see it in power and conviction and joy in the Holy Spirit. When the gospel takes hold of God's people, you will see it in the fact that they are not living primarily in pursuit of the idols of this world, but instead they are waiting for the revealing of God's resurrected Son from heaven. If you're willing to believe it, the gospel gives us otherworldly desires. The gospel of Jesus places our our highest expectation above the reach of all the things that this world can offer because the gospel places our highest expectations where Christ is, at the right hand of the Father. He's been raised from the dead. He sits in heaven. One day he will come again to deliver his people from the wrath of God against unrighteousness. And that is what the genuine church is waiting for. Which means that we probably also don't need to pay much attention to that other old tired saying that you have heard. That idea that it is possible for a Christian to be so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. Really? Really? Is that the problem with Christianity in America? That we're too heavenly minded? Is that what trips us up in our faith? That we're too focused on the glories that will be revealed when Christ comes again? What do you think? Is our problem in the church in America that self-professing believers are too focused on the unseen kingdom of Christ? Is it that we are longing too deeply to be absent from the body and present with the Lord? Is it that American Christians are too willing to suffer the loss of all things if it means being counted with Jesus? Is our problem that we're too committed to the teaching that the only answer to humanity's sin is to be found in the Lord who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification? Is our problem that we are too convinced That now he sits at God's right hand waiting until that time when every enemy will be a footstool for his feet. Is that what's wrong with us? That we are too invested in that sort of teaching? Or is it that we confess with our mouths that our life is hid with God in Christ? And then we turn around and we live and we expect and we act like the next great thing is just going to fall into our laps. One more idol to to gather our attention. One more thing that we can amass in this life. Maybe it's greater possessions. Maybe it's a completely integrated family work life. Maybe it's insert your idol here. You can take your pick from any of the terrible things that Christians should never be involved in. And in fact, you can take your pick from any of the wonderful and lovely things that Christians can be involved in, but tend to take attention away from what is primary. The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ with joy. Paul says the genuine church is going to keep first things first. So my prayer is that the Lord would make us joyful church, that he would make us an evangelizing church, most of all that he would give us the faith and the hope and the love for Jesus that makes us a church that waits for him. Let's pray together. Oh Lord and gracious God, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would apply it to the lives of your people. We ask that you would fill us with the joy of believing in Jesus so that we can't be silent about him. Fill us, O Lord, with an expectancy that he's coming again, and that when we see him, we shall be made like him, and we will see him as he is. Help us, Lord. Raise our eyes and our hearts and our hopes to heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.